الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب إليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد Uh, first, I'd like to apologize that um, I wasn't able to uh, deliver the topic uh, which was stated, uh, charity, prayer, and jihad, uh, which uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman bin Ishqiyah was supposed to give. Uh, however, though, I decided this morning to select the topic because I was asked to sit in this session, which I thought uh, would be beneficial, inshallah ta'ala, for the audience, and at the same time is... Uh, identifiable with the theme of the conference, specifically establishing Islam in the West. Uh, in this lecture, I'd like to sort of, uh, you know, enter into the subject of Dawah by first uh, discussing some of its basic principles and elements, and then coming to some of the specific issues which we should, as living in the West, uh, understand in our mission of Dawah, uh, given how much time we have. Uh, the first issue we should understand is what is the religious ruling regarding da'wah unto Allah? I mean, is da'wah unto Allah something which is just a nice thing to do, something which is just mustahab, something which is just mandu, something which is just recommended or praiseworthy, and so therefore, if we engage in it, well, then that's well and fine, and if we don't engage in it, well, then there's nothing uh, to uh, fear of any consequences of sinning or otherwise. Uh, perhaps that is a privileged view amongst Muslims. And in actuality, it's an incorrect view. For da'wah unto Allah falls under the realm of those sharia rulings which are known as al-furuj al-kifayat, or the communal obligations. Da'wah unto Allah is from those matters which is referred to as communal obligations. Now, what does that mean? The obligations of Islam can be divided into two broad categories. There are those obligations which are individual obligations, whereby which every single Muslim must do, otherwise he is sinful. An example would be the prayers. An example would be the fast of Ramadan. An example would be Hajj to Allah's house, Kaaba, if one has the means and so forth and so on. These are individual obligations. Burudul A'yan. But there's another set of obligations which are known as Burudul Kifayat. Communal obligations. And these are obligations which fall on the community as a whole. So long as some Muslims discharge this duty, then none sin. But if not enough Muslims discharge this duty, if all the Muslims neglect this duty, in the Muslim community as a whole, sins. Let's take an example that we're maybe familiar with. Adhan. Adhan is amongst the furud and kifayat. In other words, it's not responsible that every single one of us makes adhan before salah. Unlike wudu, which tahara, the condition of salah, is amongst furud and ayah. Everyone must be upon tahara before he prays. So with adhan, one person in the community has to make the adhan. As long as somebody makes adhan, calls the people to prayer in the community, then the sin 
for that community is great. And of course, if the community is very large, very expansive, like a city like London, then enough people have to make a van in order for the Muslims as a whole to be able to respond to that call. Because if somebody was making a dam on one side of the river, right, and somebody who's in North London, maybe on the other side of the river, obviously the one who's down in South London, maybe on the other side of the river, wouldn't be able to hear the dam which is called over there. But the point is, is that it's a communal obligation, and enough people have to make a van in order for that community to respond to the prayer. Likewise, a janaza, the burying and the rites of a deceased Muslim, in terms of his washing of his body, the shrouding of the body, the praying upon the, on the deceased Muslim, and the carrying of the body to the graveyard and in the burial, these are all amongst al-furuz and kifayat. So if a Muslim dies amongst us, somebody in the community has to wash that body, somebody has to shroud that body, a group of people have to pray for a deceased Muslim, not everyone, but at least a group, and they have to go ahead and bury that Muslim. Now, Dawah unto Allah falls under that category of a furud al kifayat, whereby which, as long as some Muslims engage in Dawah unto Allah, sufficient amount of Muslims so that the message of Islam is spread as it's supposed to, then there is no sin on the remaining Muslims for not engaging in da'wah. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, كُنْتُمْ خَيْرُ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ لِلنَّاسِ تَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ You are the best ummah who has come forth for humanity. You command that which is good, or that which is recognized to be right, you forbid that which is recognized to be evil, and you uh, believe in Allah. And commanding the good and forbidding the evil is da'wah, essentially. So, let me ask you a question now. Given the state of da'wah, let's say in the United Kingdom, do we feel now the Muslims, I mean, who are attending this conference, that there are sufficient Muslims giving or engaged in da'wah unto Allah, so much so that we can say that the burden of this obligation which Allah has put upon us has been lifted, and so therefore there's no sinfulness involved amongst us as a whole, as a community, because this duty has been discharged? I don't think anybody would think that. But rather we all recognize that whether it's regarding giving da'wah to our fellow Muslims, let alone giving da'wah to the general public, non-Muslim public, there is a great shortage. And so therefore, as a whole, as Muslims as a whole, we are in a state of sinfulness for not fulfilling this obligation unto Allah. And thus, da'wah, therefore, is not just something which is praiseworthy, for it is praiseworthy, without doubt, but it's an obligation, an obligation which we will be asked about as a community before Allah on the Day of Judgment. Now, in its essence, since it is a communal obligation, the responsibility for da'wah falls upon the Imam of the Muslims. As the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has said, فَالْإِمَامُ رَعْفُولٌ عَنْ رَعِيَّتِهِ That the Imam is a shepherd and he is responsible for his flock. So in the most perfect world, 
in a world in which the Muslims have an imam who looks for their general welfare and protects them from harm, it is his responsibility to discharge people, to discharge dua, to call the people to Islam. Like the Prophet wasallam used to do. He sent one time 70 Qurra to a certain area of Arabia, 70 reciters of the Quran, 70 of those that memorize the Quran, to a certain area of Arabia in order to call those people to Islam. And they were killed, and this is known as the incident of Bi'r Ma'una. Likewise, the Prophet sent Mu'az ibn Jabal, and then followed Mu'az with Abu Musa al Ash'ari and Ali Maytalik, the inhabitants of Yemen, in order to call them to Islam and to teach them Islam to those who respond to Islam, and to be a judge over there to decide between the disputes that would occur between the Muslims and between the Muslims and the non Muslims. And I think all of us are aware of the letters that the Prophet sent at the end of his life to the various kings of the world, calling them to Islam. Like uh, Caesar, Heraclius, the uh, king or the Caesar of the Byzantines, like Tuachitra, uh, the king of the Persians, and Mokalchis, who was the ruler of Alexandria and Egypt, uh, to the kings of Oman, to the king of Central Arabia, and so forth and so on. The Prophet sent a number of letters to different rulers in his time, calling them to Islam. See here, the Prophet was not just the Prophet, but the Imam of the Muslims, charging the issue of da'wah unto Allah. And before that, before his seizure, he even sent Mus'ab ibn Umayr to Medina ahead of time in order to call the inhabitants of Medina to Islam, much so that when the Prophet eventually made vigil from Mecca to Medina, the majority of the inhabitants of Medina, or at least each household of the inhabitants of Medina, at least had one Muslim. So this was an example of the Prophet Okay, what do we do now? There's no Imam, so we just close the subject of Da'wah and put it on the side until Allah uh, brings the Imam or until the Ace of comes down from the heavens? No. The responsibility then falls back upon the Ummah. Upon the Ummah as a whole in order to discharge that duty and upon us as a section of that Ummah in order to discharge that duty because the binding duty still remains and Allah will still ask us for that duty. And we, if we look at the example of the scholars of Islam, that when the rulers were neglectful in this matter like da'wah, they did not withhold from discharging that duty. Now let's take somebody which I guess all of us would probably be in agreement in terms of his scholarship, his piety, and that he's an example for succeeding generations. Let's even Taymiyyah. If you look at Ibn Taymiyyah's history, you find that among the many uh, deeds and acts which he was renowned for was that he used to also call people to Islam. And so much so that he even wrote a letter to the king of the Cypriots, the king of Cyprus, calling him to Islam. And the letter is formulated much like the Prophet Islam's letter is to Caesar. It says from Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah, to the king of the Cypriots, and then he starts calling him to Islam, explaining to him the, the benefits of Islam, explaining to him the harms of Christianity, speaking gently to him, asking him 
in a very nice manner, saying to him that I am one of the representatives of Christ, and I'm only looking for your benefit, and explaining to him why Islam is a way that he should adopt. Now, it doesn't mean I'm suggesting that each one of us now take a letter, pen and paper, and write, write the Queen calling her to Islam. I mean, you have to understand that Ibn Taymiyyah was renowned. And the non-Muslims looked to him as, well, this is a leading scholar amongst the Muslims. So, when he wrote a letter, it had some authority to it. It had some impact to it. It wasn't just somebody just writing a letter and be dismissed. And likewise, another example from Ibn Taymiyyah, how he was approaching Muslims, who, however, though, perhaps Muslims who were not uh, upon the Sunnah, that Ibn Taymiyyah wrote a letter to the followers of a person called Adi bin Musafir. And Adi bin Musafir was a Sufi um, leader who lived sometime before Ibn Taymiyyah, of course, had died, and he had a large following. And that following was one where in which the majority of the people had entered into a lot of forms of shirk by identifying their leaders of their group, of their order, their Sufi order, with Allah. In other words, they believed that Allah incarnated into the rulers, and sometimes they would therefore worship these rulers, or not the rulers, excuse me, leaders of their, of their Sufi order, or give some acts of worship to them. However, though, at the same time, they had a lot of praiseworthy characteristics, in the sense that uh, they would pray, they would fast, they would engage in jihad, but they also had corrupt beliefs. So what did he do? Well, he wrote a long letter to these followers, and he sent it, calling them uh, to uh, Islam by first mentioning to them the praiseworthy characteristics they have as a group, those characteristics which are in line with the Sunnah, and then informing them of the dangers of certain of their beliefs, and praying for them that they would come to the truth. So here again we have an instance where uh, here Ibn Taymiyyah, like he wrote a letter to the king of the Cypriots calling him to Islam, he also wrote a letter to this large sect, this large group within the Ummah, calling them to the Sunnah. And so therefore the point is, is that even though Da'wah, in the end, since it's a communal obligation, falls upon the Imam of the Muslims to organize and to discharge, when the Imam of the Muslims is negligent, like in the case of Ibn Taymiyyah, or when the Imam of the Muslims is not present, like in our case, the duty then falls back upon who? The Ummah. And so therefore falls back upon us collectively. Alright, with that, of course we should understand the great merit of picking up this task of da'wah unto Allah. I mean, in other words, that da'wah unto Allah is not just like any deed, but is one of the greatest of the good deeds. For in reality, what you're doing is you're taking on the role of Allah's prophet. And as we know, who is the best of humanity? Allah's prophet. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this verse at the conclusion of Surah Yusuf, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, to announce, Qun hadihi sabili. Say, this is my path. I call unto Allah with sure sightedness, in other words, with knowledge. I and whoever follows me. Now, the grammarians, the scholars of the Arabic language, when looking into this verse, 
has discussed what does it mean that I and whoever follows me. I mean, does I and whoever follows me is related back to calling unto Allah, or does I and whoever follows me relate back to being a puncher or And the meaning refers to both. So in other words, if you are a follower of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then by the dictates of this verse, you must call unto Allah, and likewise you must be upon sure psychicists. And so therefore, those who engage unto Dawah and to Allah, have taken on a very noble profession, or a noble mission, a noble task, and that is that of the prophets of Allah, the best of the creation. And for this reason, the Prophet ﷺ has said that من دعا إلى هدى whoever calls to guidance كان له من الأجر مثل أجور من تبعه that whoever calls unto guidance he will have the reward equivalent of all those who follow him never losing any one of them of their own reward and whoever calls unto error he will have the sin of whoever follows him none of them will ever lose their portion of the sin. What does that mean, this idea? Well, if you call one person to Islam, and he adopts Islam and accepts Islam, then every single good deed he does goes back to you. That doesn't mean that person loses his good deeds. He still has his good deeds. But every single good deed that he does goes back to you. And if you set a person astray, then every single sin which has occurred of that goes also back to you. And likewise, that doesn't mean that he, that person loses his own sins, but it means you partake in that because you taught them sinfulness. You showed them sinfulness. Or you encouraged them to sinfulness. And so therefore, those people who call unto Allah, those people who teach the people good, those people who bring people to Islam or correct the Muslims, look at the great reward they'll have. Because they have the reward of all those people Plus, that knowledge which they impart, whoever those people impart that knowledge to, they will receive a portion. And if that third generation parts to a fourth generation, they receive a portion. And so therefore the Prophet Sahaba, his companions, all receive a share of our good deeds. Because they're the ones who brought Islam to the rest of the world after Paul Fatim died. And people like the Pope of Rome, right, receives all those evil deeds of his followers. Because he teaches and propagates something which is misguided. And so therefore we see in this, we just think about it, the great reward that we can gain by taking and bearing this task, this noble act of da'wah unto Allah. Let alone the fact that it's a communal obligation upon us. Well, what are the aims of da'wah? When one engages in this task, I mean, okay, Brother Ali, you told me it's an obligation, so I fear Allah, I want to do this obligation. You told me of the great reward, I want this reward. So what's my aim? What do I do? How do I approach this? Well, the first thing we should know is that the greatest aim of da'wah is guidance of humanity, to guide people. This is foremost aim. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, addressing his prophets, 
وَإِنَّكَ لَتَجْعُوهُمْ إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ You call them to a straight path. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said to him, اِجْعُوا إِلَى رَبِّكَ Call unto your Lord. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said about us as a whole, وَلِتَكُمْ مِنْكُمْ أُمَّةً يَدْعُونَ إِلَى الْخَيَرِ that let there be يَدْعُونَ إِلَى الْخَيَرِ So let there be amongst you an ummah which calls to the good. So call to the good, call to the straight path, call unto your Lord. This all refers to guiding people. And so therefore the greatest aim of da'wah, and the most foremost matter that should be in the mind of the one who wants to call unto Allah is guiding people. It's not making followers. It's not making the numbers of your ranks, of your party or your organization swell. That's not the aim of da'wah. Those are misconceptions that people might have who engage in da'wah. They're looking for followers, which means their ikhlas is not there, the purity of the intention is not there. They're looking to swell the ranks of their group or their party, means also the intention is not there. The greatest aim of da'wah is to guide people. And that should be, we should set our focus on that first and foremost. Likewise, among the aims of da'wah is to make an ummah, an ummah which is guided and striving in the path of Allah. Da'wah does not, I mean, Islam is not just a personal religion which one has with his Lord, you know, like, like in, the, in the concept of a secular a religion, a secular, uh, you know, frame. In a sense, okay, well, you know, I'm guiding a person, so alhamdulillah, he prays, he fasts, he gives his zikah, but, you know, he minds his own business. He's really not engaged in society as a whole. That's not da'wah. Da'wah's second aim is to prepare and to make an ummah, a community, a community which strives on the path of Allah, a community which becomes a witness unto mankind, against mankind. And so therefore, we must ask ourselves, if our da'wah in the end is not producing an ummah, I mean, it might be bringing brothers into the deen, it might be bringing sisters into the sunnah, that's well and fine. But if we are unable to produce an ummah, in the true sense of the word, an ummah which stands as a witness against mankind, by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge the other communities by the conduct and the standard of this ummah, then that da'wah which those people are engaging in is not the da'wah of the Prophet it's not the da'wah of the Salaf of But it is a corruption of that da'wah. And I think there's an answer. Somebody just um, the light the blue Ford Mondeo, the registration is P250AFC, the light to left hand is on the road. And the proof is Allah's statement, هو الذي أرسل رسوله بالهدى ودين الحق ليظهره على الدين كله ولو كره المشركون. It is he who has sent his messenger with guidance and true religion in order that it may manifest it above its, over all other religion, even if the unbelievers dislike that. The aim of this religion, the aim of Islam, that it is supreme and above all ways of life. That's the aim of Islam. You know, the concept that people have today 
And what many Muslims engage in discussions uh, with non-Muslims that, you know, Islam needs to, well, let us live in a plurality of ideas and a plurality of religions in the world and a plurality of ways of life and try to have some sort of dialogue where we can understand each other. Okay, we'll give up something of Islam, you give up something of your ways, and let's try to work together, you know, as you as non-Muslims and us as Muslims, for the better good of humanity. That's a false call. That's a call which brings an end to the Islamic religion. That's not what Allah sent the Prophet Muhammad for. Allah didn't send the Prophet Muhammad to acknowledge unbelief. No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet Muhammad with guidance with true religion so that this deed may manifest itself over all religion, even if the unbelievers find that verse. I mean, even if an unbeliever was to, you know, come across this table lecture and say, oh, what are these people trying to say? Are you trying to put an end to our way of life? An end to our civilization? Of course. But not through, as they imagine, through you know, terrorism and killing and unwanted acts of crime, that's not the way of the prophets of Allah, but through guidance, through calling them to the truth. So that they accept it with their whole heart, so that they want this truth. Just like the prophet's companions did. Prophet's companions didn't bring these large sections of humanity in Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Persia, Africa, and so forth to Islam by the sword. But they brought them through the truth which they carried and embodied because they were the students of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and so therefore you cannot reach this aim. You cannot make this type of ummah unless the Muslims themselves are an ummah. We cannot reach and fulfill this covenant that Allah has sent the Prophet with true guidance, the true guidance of true religion, that may manifest itself over above all religion unless the Muslims themselves are in Ummah upon the truth striving and struggling to fulfill Allah's covenant which they have taken now what is the next aim of Da'wah well the third aim of Da'wah is that the proof of Allah is established against those who are obstinate those who want to reject of Islam. What does that mean? That the proof of Allah is established. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent messengers that the humanity would not have an argument on the day of judgment as to why they did not follow the truth. That's why Allah sent the messengers. Allah sent the messengers so that humanity would not have an argument, a hujjah, as mentioned in the Quran, against Allah that is why they did not accept the truth because the truth never reached them so that humanity would not say on the day of judgment well the truth did not reach us Allah said prophet after prophet messenger after messenger to each ummah in order for the message to reach the people so they would have no argument on the day of judgment as to the truth not coming to them and so therefore us as people who are fulfilling the role of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu him being the last messenger and his ummah being the whole earth, one of our roles is to establish the proof against those who are obstinate, those who are unbelieving, those who are rebellious, so that they would have no excuse before Allah the Day of Judgment. And that means that Islam would have to reach every single household. 
so that the people would have no doubt as to what they are rejecting. They're not rejecting something which is because they've heard of it in a corrupted form. This, their common sense dictates to them that it's wrong. I mean, now, for instance, if a person in the United Kingdom thinks that all Islam is, is that these people go around, blowing up people, killing people, that all Islam is is that the, the Muslims are people who, you know, cover up their women and, you know, just and hide them in a corner and then go kill people, then who would want to accept a religion like this? But if the true message came to them, the true Islam, then they have no excuse for Allah as they were And so therefore, one of the major aims of Dawah, after guiding humanity, building an ummah, a righteous ummah, which is striving in the path of Allah, is that for those who reject, because, you know, not everybody's going to accept Islam, but there are excuses cut off before Allah. The truth reaches them. And, you know, if you look at the books uh, written regarding a subject called Al-Ahkam Sultaniyah, which Ahkam Sultaniyah refers to those books of statecraft. In other words, how is a Muslim state to be governed? What are the different, you know, positions in it? The different responsibilities? They discuss in that, normally, a topic regarding uh, jihad against the unbelievers. Because that's when, of course, you know, warfare is one of the tasks of a state. And so, therefore, in that, they discuss the issue that the Prophet ﷺ will not engage in warfare with any people unless he first gave them da'wah. This was his sunnah. And then they discuss, has da'wah reached the people of the world so that so forth that if the imam of the Muslims wanted to send out an army, uh, would he have to first call them to Islam or could he just send out an army and wage jihad against these people? If you look at the classical formulations of these books, like an Ahkam al-Sultani by Abu Ya'na, who was a scholar of Muslims who lived in the 5th century of Islam, you will find that he makes a statement, he says, well, as far as today, we know of no people who Islam has not reached. Except for perhaps maybe some people living at the ends of the earth that no one knows of their existence except for Allah. Now, was he exaggerating? Of course not. He's a scholar of Islam and he's a great judge who is known for his renowned works and his piety. But what does that show? It shows that obviously that the Muslims actually sent people, actually engaged in da'wah, that they reached the ends of the earth. So much so that Abu Ya'la said, when he formulated his book, Ahkam al that if the Muslims were to send out an army, they would not have to be fear that they did not give them first the message and therefore fall into sinfulness because the da'wah has reached everybody on the earth and if it has to reach somebody, it's some human being that nobody knows about except for Allah. You know that all the humanity that human knowledge had of their existence, they reached. And something I think that's fantastic. But let me tell you something that I saw with my own eyes. When I was in China a couple of years ago, there's a masjid in Beijing, which is over a thousand years old. I mean, that forbidden palace was forbidden to talk to you about. Yes, it's about six, seven hundred years old. This masjid is older than that. It predates it by about three centuries. A thousand years old. And it's in Beijing. And Beijing, for those of you who are trying to try to, you know, think of how the map is, Beijing is at the other end of China, on the far east coast. Okay. It's not on the part of China, which is, for instance, next to Central Asia, where the Muslims are. It's on the other end of China. And yet there's a mosque that's a thousand years old. And in the courtyard of the mosque, there are two graves. Two graves of two men from Al-Bukhara. 
who were the first two men to come to the Chinese people in Beijing and give them dawah. And the markings on their grave, we took pictures of it so forth, it was like they died, if I remember one of them, at the year 461. So imagine to himself. Two men get out from Bukhara, must travel at least a thousand, thousand five hundred miles, go to Beijing in the fifth century. Allah knows what type of hardship they had to go through. You know, in terms of, of course, these are, you know, Mongolian and Chinese uh, people who are, you know, I mean, barbaric, not having a religion and so forth. They went through all of that. They came to the Chinese. They stood in that spot where the message was built, and they gave these people dawah. And now, the Chinese peoples are maybe 80, 90 million Muslims. So, when Abu Ya'la made that statement that he felt in the 5th century that there was nobody on the face of the earth except that they had reached the Dawah to. Obviously, it was not just an exaggeration, but it was really part of a Ummah which had taken the responsibility of giving Dawah to Allah. And so, therefore, the third example is establishing the proof or the argument against those who are obstinate and arrogant and refuse to accept Islam. And the fourth aim of Dawah uh, is that we prevent corruption on the earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ Your Lord would have not destroyed the people, meaning the villages, meaning the societies, the communities of humanity, بِظُلْمِ in injustice. وَأَهْلُهَا مُسْلِحُونَ And its people were righteous. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sunnah on earth that he does not destroy a people as long as there are righteous people in that ummah commanding good and forbidding evil. But when a group of, when a community of human beings no longer have amongst them people who command good and forbid evil, Allah destroys them. Even if there are those people amongst them who are righteous in themselves, who says they do not partake in evil, but if they are not willing to sacrifice and to take the hardship of commanding good and forbidding evil, in other words, opposing the trends, the evil corruption and vices of their society, Allah will destroy them all. The righteous amongst them and the impious. And so therefore we find, if you look at the stories of the prophets in the Quran, we find them not just only coming to calling the people to Tawheed. I mean, here's a misconception that many brothers have. Yes, the message of all the prophets was to Allah's Tawheed. Allah We are sent to every single people and messengers saying, worship Allah and avoid a Tawheed. Tawheed means whatever is worshiped besides Allah. So this is their primary message. But is this their only message? I mean, the prophets of Allah only, you know, just call to Tawheed and nothing else? No. Rather, they called to Tawheed and they forbade the vices of their society. And look at the stories of the prophets in the Quran. Look at Shu'ayb. Shu'ayb, for instance, dealt with the vices of the people of Midian by telling them who were basically corrupt people, to cheat people in their economic dealings, their transactions, and so forth, by the they should okay. They should give a just balance. In other words, do not cheat people. And they also were highway robbers. They used to wait for people to pass by them and, you know, rip them and, you know, off and, you know, take their wealth and kill them and plunder them. 
forbade them from that. Look at the prophet Luke. He called his people to leave this type of corrupt, deviant behavior. In other words, what is known in our uh, language is homosexuality. Uh, look at uh, the prophet's food. He forbade the people, he forbade uh, uh, the mood uh, to, I mean, odds. He forbade odds from spreading corruption on the, wor on the earth and from wasting money. And so forth and so on. If you look at the different prophets, Prophet Moses forbade Pharaoh from subjugating and captivating the children of Israel and putting them in bondage. So each prophet, besides calling to Tawheed, also had a message of what we might term, uh, even though it's perhaps an inaccurate term, but this is probably the that comes to my mind now, a, for, a message of social reform, a, mes a message of communal reform, a message which tries to remove the, the vices in that society. And so therefore our da'wah, should not be a da'wah only to Tawheed, yet our da'wah begins and ends with Tawheed and is always connected to Tawheed. But at the same time we must be observant of the other societal ills, communal ills, which we are commanded to try to eradicate by convincing people to give up these ways. The fifth uh, aim of da'wah is that we build earth, we build a civilization, we build humanity with good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اِرْفْعَوا وَاسْجُدُوا وَعَبُدُوا رَبَّكُمْ وَفْعَلُوا الْخَيْرِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ Oh, you who believe, oh, you who believe, therefore faith, and Allah says, اِرْفْعَوا Bow down, do? prostrate, wa'abudu rabbakum, worship your Lord, wa'fa'alu khair, do good, perhaps you might succeed. So in this verse Allah calls us to iman, and to bowing, and to prostrating, and to worshiping Him, and doing good. Good here means all forms of good. And so therefore an aim of this ummah, an aim of da'wah, is not just in the sense of guiding people, building righteous Muslim society, establishing the truth against the unbelievers, preventing against, uh, preventing against um, corruption on the earth. But more importantly, it's also part of that to build the earth, build good, build, you know, what they call it up a term which is prevalent in our day, civilization. But not civilization that the unbelievers believe it to be, but the Islamic civilization which is rooted in the worship of Allah. But then that beauty of the worship of Allah extends its good to all of humanity. And so therefore, da'wah is not just a religious, in a sense, a religious act that is just in the masjid. Da'wah is not just in the masjid, but da'wah has to take its role in society. This is the message of the Prophet for a long time. And so, when we are engaging in da'wah, we must keep this broad picture in our mind. Now, yes, we might be, because of our resources, and our time, and our place, and our limited abilities, we might just focusing on just bringing one or two people to religion. That's, that's fine. That's not what the issue is. But the issue is, what is our understanding? We need to have this broad understanding of da'wah and so Allah, even though our time, our place, our resources, our numbers might preclude us from, for instance, building a civilization. Because we're not there yet. 
But we should remember we need to get there. And that's important to understand. Now, when giving da'wah, when engaging in da'wah, when calling people to Islam, da'wah is built upon three principles. Three vital pillars, you might say. Uh, in brief, they are what are you calling to, who you're calling, and the caller. What are you calling to, who are you calling, and the caller. And let us quickly, in the next ten minutes or so, go through those right quickly. What are we calling to? The first thing we should understand is that we should only call to Islam. We do not call to a party. We do not call to a sect. We do not call to a sheikh. We do not call to an imam. We do not call to a state. But we call to Islam, to Allah's religion. Guide us to the straight path. That's what is our prayer. And that's what we guide people to. We don't call to a state, to a country. Calling to that political allegiance to a country or to a certain position regarding a ruler. We don't call to an imam or a scholar or a sheikh. Telling people to be a follower of this person or to take a certain position regarding this person or against that person. We don't call to a party or to a group. We don't call to one aspect of Islam alone and exclude the other aspects. But we call to Islam in its entirety, to Allah's religion, to the straight path, to Allah's path. And so therefore, we should understand them that therefore Islam, when we say we're calling to Islam, we're calling to Allah's book, to the Quran. We're calling to the Sunnah of the Prophet and we're calling to the consensus of the Ummah. Those matters in which the Muslims are in agreement, in where which they have no doubt as to this being from the religion of Muhammad Now, the other matter which we should understand with regards to what we call to is that Islam is, you know, in the popular expression that Muslims have, a total way of life. It is the total way of life. It touches every single aspect of your life. From every single day, from the time you're born and in your ear is read the Adhan, to the time when you're buried and people say certain dua when they put you in your grave, and everything in between is Islam. So when we call to Islam, we cannot compartmentalize Islam. And this is a big problem we face when calling people to Islam. Especially non-Muslims. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us by allowing non-Muslims to come to Islam upon our hands. Even though many of us really don't deserve this blessing. Because we really are not adequate people in calling to Allah. But Allah blesses us. It's His mercy to them that, that He doesn't show them our bad thoughts and they only see the beauty of Islam. And to us, in the sense that it's a mercy to us that He allows them to come to Islam on our hands so that we can win some of the rewards and have something stored up for the Day of Judgment. But because we do not ourselves understand Islam to be a total way of life, what happens? When these people come into Islam, we just sort of leave them. They say, La ilaha illallah, and we do not even think of the consequences of them becoming a Muslim. 
by him becoming a Muslim, he has split off from his society, from his culture, from his people. And so therefore, he's a human being. His life is not restricted to coming to the masjid and wearing a certain type of garb. That's not his life. Menhaj al-Hayat. Islam, a menhaj of life. It's not for the Deen Albani's suggestion for every Salafi to read that chapter. So based upon his suggestion, I am repeating that suggestion. And for those who are going to say what they're going to say, don't worry about it. But really, the book is available in English, and that chapter really is a good introduction for brothers and sisters to understand the totality of Islam as a way of life. Now obviously, uh, the best expression of that reality is reading the Quran, reading the Sunnah, right? Because you find practical examples. But we're now talking about an introduction, because if somebody just just to open the Quran or open the Hadith, uh, because of his knowledge, because of the way he approaches the Quran and the Hadith, he might not be able to cull that information. It might not be dramatic enough for him. But this is a good introduction to that. Now, the second uh, pillar, uh, to be quick, because we have a lot of questions, uh, regarding uh, da'wah unto Allah, uh, is that the person who is calling unto Allah. The person who is calling unto Allah must have knowledge of what he's calling unto. That's the first characteristic. Remember what we said? That, قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرَةً I call unto Allah upon sure sightedness and those knowledge. In other words, an ability to discern, discernment, what is right and what is wrong. That is the first characteristic. And so therefore, if we're following the Prophet ﷺ, we also must have, not just call, but also have knowledge. And part of that is that one acts upon what he calls to. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala condemns the Jews by saying, أَتَأْمُرُونَ النَّاسَ بِالْبِرِّ وَتَنْسَوْنَ أَنفُسُكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ تَتْمُونَ الْكِتَابِ أَفَلَا Do you call people to righteousness and yet forget yourself and you recite the book? Do you not have any sense? I mean, what kind of sense is a person going to call people to good and himself doesn't do the good? Or forbid people from evil and himself engages into evil? And so therefore, the second characteristic of the da'i, the one who calls unto Allah, is that he himself also asks upon what he calls upon. And likewise, the third characteristic is that he should expect his reward, he should expect his wage from Allah alone. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught his prophet to say uh, in the Quran, وَمَا أَسْأَلَكُمْ عَلَيْهِ مِنْ أَجْرِ in I do not ask from you any wage for my calling to Allah. I don't want any money from you. I don't want you to pay me to give da'wah. I'm not trying to get some sort of financial benefit. I'm not trying to make a profit from the loser of God. But rather my wage, my reward, is with the Lord of all worlds. And so therefore the da'i should not get confused. It sometimes happens in that he makes Islam a means to make money. Islam becomes a means to make profit for him. This is a very dangerous disease that some people slip into. But rather, da'wah to Allah, one should only take his reward from Allah. The other thing is, is that one must be patient upon what he, from the harm he's going to receive when giving da'wah to Allah. Allah. <laughs> 
By time, humanity is in destruction, meaning they're going to hell, except those who believe and have righteous deeds, and encourage one another or command another one another in the truth, and command one another in patience. Because when you command people to the truth, you have to command people to be patient, because when you call unto Allah, not everybody's going to like it. And people will say things about you, they'll make rumors about you, they'll slander you, they'll slander your organization, they will doubt your sincerity, there are all sorts of things you will hear. This is what the prophets say. This is what the prophets had to say. They said he was Majnoon, he was insane, he was possessed, he was a poet, he was seeking to do some sort of change, in, you know, by changing the uh, society and so forth. And then he was patient for all of this. And sometimes the patient needs patience upon physical harm. They might beat you, they might try to kill you, they might imprison you. But yet you must be patient upon your religion. The third category, or the third pillar, which we just want to mention two points, uh, regarding, uh, because there's no more time, and perhaps another lecture in the future we can continue on this uh, theme, is the issue of who are you calling. We should understand that Islam is a global religion. And recently I understood, I, I saw an episode when I was uh, last week in London, somebody showed me a series called Planet Islam, right? Came out on the BBC. Okay. So, you know, obviously the aim of it was to try to incite fear in the uh, viewing audience. They said, oh, the Muslims are coming, right? So be careful. Planet Islam, you know? Well, yeah. Planet Islam is what is coming eventually. And this is our message. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Say, oh, to Muhammad, to all of humanity, I am your messenger to all of you. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was sent to every single human being from the time of his commission. In 1,400 years and until the end of time, every single human being, indeed every single jinn, is part of the Prophet's homeland. And so therefore it is part of Islam in the sense that this message must reach every single corner and household on earth. The message of the Prophet Muhammad And I give you good news, my brother, that the future is for Islam. So not inshallah, we don't say inshallah that it's perhaps, but inshallah definitely it's for Islam. This is Allah's promise to this ummah. Inshallah not ta'aliqan wa tanjeezan. This is the promise that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given for this ummah. And the day will come. So, yes, of course, the Muslim is sometimes, he feels saddened by what he hears. Scholars are put in jail. People are being oppressed. Muslims are being killed. Where is the victory of Allah? The victory of Allah will come. Without doubt, for this ummah. Allah's promise is that this religion will manifest it above itself over all religions. Allah's sharia will eventually be established in every single corner of the earth before the day of judgment. People will live under the shade of the Sharia and will live worshiping Allah alone before the day of judgment. This is Allah's promise to Ummah. Now whether we will take partake of that in the sense that we will see some of that or not, this is Allah's decree. And this is Allah's wisdom and we only hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to see some of the victory in this earth before we die. But if not, it belongs to a wisdom behind for Allah as you judge. To determine whether we ourselves are going to see the victory or not. This is for Allah to determine. 
But what we are responsible to do is to discharge our duty and ask Allah forgiveness for our shortcomings. Uh, and with that, I apologize that uh, the lecture comes to an end. We need to ask some questions. Ask some questions. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله ولكم سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Some brief announcements first. Um, the Sheikh has spoke about the noble task of giving, giving Dara. Uh, some brief inf- information. There is an organization in England called IPO, the Islamic Propagation Organization, whose main aim in this country is giving Dawah to non-Muslims. The method of giving Dawah is by Dawah tables. They're set up every Saturday throughout the whole of the United Kingdom, calling the people to Tawheed. Brother Umar Abdullah and Abu Taymiyyah are here recruiting people, uh, they're trying to increase the numbers and the organization has had over 360 shahadas and we need more brothers to participate in this global task. So inshallah we're going to the question and answer inshallah. For the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, there is no compulsion in religion, is sometimes misunderstood. Please could you explain its meaning, meaning in regard to Dawah? Yes. Uh, the brother or the sister is asking regarding the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah where Allah Azzawajal says, La ikraha fadeed, which is translated as there is no compulsion in religion. Well, we can understand this verse by understanding the context in which it was revealed. When the Prophet wasallam came to Medina, Certain fathers accepted Islam, and some of their children remained non-Muslim, be they pagans or scripturaries like Jews. And so therefore these fathers attempted to compel their children into Islam, children who had already reached the age of maturity, in other words, by the Sharia standards, they are adults. I mean, they're not small children, the idea is like, you know, kids under the age of discretion or under the age of blue maturity, but were adults, okay? And so therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this verse, La ikraha tadeen, there's no compulsion in the religion. So this verse shows that nobody can be brought to Islam at the edge of the sword. This is forbidden in our religion. However, that does not mean that Islam is not supposed to be the dominant way of life. Because what happens is, is when the way of life in society, the way of life of a civilization is not Islam, that is what's ruling that civilization or that, or that society, then they put barriers between the individuals living Islam, from hearing Islam and uh, the people calling them to Islam. So the systems need to be eradicated in order for the people to have the opportunity for them to reach the message. Once the message reaches them, the question of whether they want to accept or not accept is, is up to them. And why not? Next question is, correct me if I'm wrong, but some scholars hold that if we are active in calling people to Allah in the land of the Kuffar, then it is better for us to stay here instead of making hijrah. What level of activity should we be involved in if we are to stay here? Well, as I alluded to last night, I mean regarding the issue of hijrah, the thing that we should keep in mind is that a verse has been sent down in the Quran regarding those people who have caused injustice to their souls and when the angels come to seize them at the time of death the angels will say to them who were you living among? and so therefore 
a person needs to always keep that in mind when living amongst the non-Muslims. That he fears that when the angels come to take his soul, that if he doesn't have a good excuse with Allah, that perhaps he will be judged. It won't be the angels of mercy that come to him, but the angels of Allah's punishment and wrath for him living with the unbelievers. So, one way to justify one's existence amongst the non-Muslims, as the questioner accurately uh, phrased, is to give da'wah to Allah. Now, how much da'wah is necessary for one to be no longer held accountable for living amongst the non-Muslims? This is for Allah to judge. So why can I say, okay, it's, you know, just one day a week or one hour a week or so forth? No. Keep on giving da'wah and hope that you've given enough da'wah so that the angels death that they come to seize your soul while living amongst the non-Muslims, you have an excuse for your Lord for being here. How much is that? Allah knows. But one hopes for Allah's mercy and at the same time he fears his wrath. Media in the, media in the West, TV, radio, and newspapers have affected the barrier in general in the, in the general public's mind towards Islam in a negative way. How can we counteract this negative image? Now, well, you know, I mean, in the United States, we also suffer from the same problem of negative uh, stereotyping of the Muslims, negative images uh, being portrayed in the various forms of media. This is something which we likewise suffer from in the United States. But alhamdulillah, what has happened in the United States in the last two years, which has turned the tide uh, regarding this in the favor of the Muslims, at least to some extent, is that an organization has appeared uh, in the United States called the Council for American Islamic Relations or CARE, which actively monitors the media and actively tries to correct the image and the negative stereotyping of Muslims uh, in the media. And they have been met with much success. And inshallah, this is an indication of their ikhlas, their sincerity, and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant them more success and more victories and increase the reward. So therefore, the uh, issue of monitoring the media, uh, correcting stereotypical images, correcting this information, is responsible for the Muslim. But there are different ways to approach it. I mean, you can approach it in a um, sporadic and in a spastic sort of fashion, right? Which will get you nowhere. Or you can understand how to communicate properly with the media, the channels which, uh, which are considered to be proper channels to address them, and how to bear pressure on them in a manner which is understood in the society which allows for pressure to be bared, so no image will be given against Muslims in a negative fashion, or at least to reduce them. And so therefore Muslims need to study the media, Muslims who are maybe perhaps were at one time, especially for non-Muslims who are perhaps maybe engaged in the media and have entered into the fold of Islam, Muslims should uh, encourage them and facilitate them for to set up organizations uh, like the one we have in the United States in order to address these issues. And I would suggest uh, to the brothers of uh, this uh, conference uh, venue or for other Muslims perhaps in other conferences that perhaps uh, you might want to invite uh, the brothers uh, from uh, CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, uh, in order to maybe give some sort of tips or to explain their history, how they got set up, what are some of the effective techniques they've had, and then perhaps some Muslims can then dedicate themselves to this task in the United Kingdom. Now, obviously, there are differences in the approach to media, the availability of media outlets, alternative media outlets, and communication and so forth from the United States to the United Kingdom, based upon the differences in the structure of the society. 
but perhaps much of the lessons learned in the United States would be useful, or at least some of those lessons for the Muslims in the United Kingdom and Allah knows best. You mentioned that the activities, you mentioned the two activities of the brothers who traveled to China to give Dao. Would you advise the us to travel abroad in this matter to foreign lands and to give Dao? No, I mean, we didn't just get on the airplane and okay, all right, let's go to China today. You know, it wasn't something like that. It was an international conference, uh, the fourth international conference on women held by the United Nations. And there was a lot of anti-Islamic uh, speeches and talks to be given by the idea of the argument Muslims are anti-women. And so a number of Muslim organizations around the world <coughs> went in order to give lectures to clear up the image, to give an alternative view. And of course, our voice among the thousands, I mean, there was like, you know, 60, 70,000 people there. So, you know, 15, 20 Muslims giving lecture, our voice was drowned out. But a presence was meant, set, seen, a presence was felt. So in other words, to show the people, no, we will not tolerate you just, you know, slandering our religion, but rather we're going to explain to you how Islam used the women, and we're going to call you to an alternative to your lifestyle, to the, to the type of civilization you want to build. And so that was the aim of it, uh, in the, and a lot knows about how, you know, successful. We hope for a large reward and continue success. Please comment on the types of da'wah, which is not based on articulation, rather on exhibiting the teachings of Islam, as a practical behavior when people are impressed and come to the conclusion that these people are Muslims. Okay, if I understand the question correctly about how to give an example of our character in Dawah, really, in reality, the best means of Dawah is through action. And when you come down to it, the best means of doubt is to action. Very few human beings, Allah has given them the intelligence and the foresight to weigh truth from falsehood just in a, let's say, a theoretical sense. Okay? Most of humanity will not believe until they see it. As the addict says, seeing is believing. And so therefore, most of humanity will not respond to Islam until they see Islam. And that's why Arabia, when the Prophet gave da'wah, the Arabs waited for a sign. If the Prophet was successful against the Quraysh and Mecca entered into Islam, then they would accept Islam. But if Quraysh was successful, then they were not going to accept Islam. They just decided to sit and wait. And the same thing, I would imagine, with the large numbers of non-Muslims in Europe and the United States and elsewhere uh, in the West, uh, their issue is that they are many people who don't have either a positive or a negative view of Islam. So they're just looking, and they're observing from afar. And until they actually see Muslim communities, see Muslim individuals in the way they're conduct, then they'll come to Islam. I mean, for instance, you know, one of the major problems in Western society, Western civilization today, is the disintegration of the family. I mean, people do not have stable lives. And they suffer from this on a day-to-day -day basis. And a whole myriad of social ills come out of that. Now, if Muslim families are suffering from the same problems, then what has Islam brought any difference? But if you have strong Muslim families, Muslim families where are that are healthy, both spiritually, psychologically, physically, and you look at it and say, oh, what a happy family. And then over here, oh, that's another happy family. And there's another happy family down the road. And they're all Muslim. And my household is in shambles. Maybe there's something there. 
So, and that's just a, a good example. Likewise, it works. I mean, a person can tell. If a person is in charge of 100 employees, and a Muslim employee stands out in his integrity and his behavior and his attitude over the other 99, and that's so that's a sign. But if that Muslim is just as bad or even worse than the other, he doesn't distinguish anything. Likewise, in buying and selling, which is something very important, you know, Muslims who are, it's very important that we go to those Muslims who own shops and say, show an image, positive image of Islam. Because when a person enters that store and he finds a negative image of Islam, those are probably one of the major contexts they get of Muslims. But if he sees a positive image, a person who's helpful, a person who's generous, a person who's kind, a person who shows you know, good business ethics, which are Islamic ethics, in terms of not cheating and not lying and not stealing, this can give a positive image to those people who go to. And the same thing with Muslims who own restaurants, and the same thing with Muslims who drive taxis, and so forth and so on. I understand that Dawah is, is an obligation, but what should we do when the Kuffar have attacked Muslim lands? Is there still time to give Dawah? Have attacked us as well? Attack Muslim lands? Or attack Muslim lands, or attack Muslim lands. <laughs> Alright. What should we do when Kuffar have attacked Muslim lands? Is there still time to give Dawah? Well, the Prophet used to give Dawah on the battlefield. When he was going out one day, I remember one hadith, when he was going out one day on jihad, there were some new Muslims. And these new Muslims said, O Messenger of Allah, uh, give us a tree by which we can hang our swords on, like they have a tree to hang their swords on. There was a special type of tree uh, in Arabia that the pagans would hang their swords on because they would think that this tree would give some power through their swords in order to make it you know, like better in battle. So these new Muslims said, okay, Messenger of Allah, make us a tree like they have a tree. Prophet said, Allahu Akbar, innaha sunan. Allah is great, it is the, the ways of the previous peoples. You have said to me like they said to Moses, give us a God like Pharaoh has a God. So the point is, is that the Prophet didn't say, well, it's time for jihad now. We're on the battlefield. It's not time for Dawah. No, he gave Dawah on the way to Jihad. So, Dawah and Jihad are not mutually exclusive. Say, Muslim is in a country where he is being attacked, then he has to defend himself, and he has to defend his Muslims, brothers and sisters. But that does not negate the fact that he gives Dawah while he's fighting. And at the same time, Muslims who give Dawah also can support the causes of Muslims around the world by raising the consciousness of the Muslims and encouraging them to support their brethren around the world through means like charity, through dua, through helping them and so forth. So these things are not mutually exclusive. It's not like, okay, we're either going to give dawah or we're either going to engage in jihad or we're not going to... No. Allah's religion is a whole. Depending on the time and depending on the circumstance. And I hope that clarifies so. In giving da'wah to many non-Muslims at work, uh, the subject of the Taliban uh, always comes up when it goes into the extreme prohibitions of women not wearing, women having to wear socks. Uh, this, was, this was written in a respectable British newspaper. How can we explain to the non-Muslims such extreme antics 
um, without degrading the Taliban? Well, let's say you're calling a Christian to Islam, and he brings the issue of the body ban or any other group. Just ask him a question. If you were calling me to Christianity, would you want me to judge Christianity on the basis of one group of Christians? No. If he was a Jew, would you ask me to, to base Judaism on the basis of one group of Jews? If he was a secularist, would you like me to base your whole civilization on the basis of one segment of your civilization? So the point is, is that there is no group of Muslims which are a representative of Islam in the sense that we judge Islam only by their conduct. But rather, Islam is definitely the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu but I'm brought. If that action is in agreement with that which the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu brought, then that's good and fine. If it's not, then that is a deviation. And that deviation could be a great deviation which leads us Muslims to unbelief, and it could be sinfulness, or it could be an erroneous jihad, where they get one reward for their effort to try to find the truth, uh, but it's nonetheless being erroneous. Do you think that is a greater priority to give dawah to Muslims, i.e. those born Muslims, but who have little understanding of the deen, rather than non-Muslims, as a means of strengthening the unity of Islam, should we save our brothers before anyone else? Well, again, we don't want to make the issue an either-or. I mean, either we give dawah to Muslims or we give dawah to non-Muslims. No. We need to give dawah to Muslims and we need to give dawah to non-Muslims. And what you find in reality is that when you have strong Muslims, Non-Muslims are attracted to Islam. And likewise, when non-Muslims come into Islam, they sometimes help weak Muslims strengthen their Islam. Because they feel ashamed. They feel embarrassed. So, both is needed. But the question is, where do we put our priorities? Who do we address first? Uh, this is something which, you know, would differ from locale to locale, from time, place, area, resources, and so forth. But I think what we do have, for instance, in the sense that if you have an organization uh, like the uh, IPO, uh, an organization, and I don't, I'm not saying that's the only organization, this is the one I'm aware of in the United Kingdom, which is dedicated to calling non-Muslims, which is fine. There can be other organizations which are dedicated to educating Muslims, other organizations which are dedicated to solving uh, family problems amongst Muslims, other educations uh, 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 dedicated to building Muslim schools, some to building Muslim mosques, comes to graveyards and so forth, and we have to do the whole ummah, right? So, you know, specialization and dedication in a certain field does not negate other acts. What should you do if the Muslim community you live in contains a lot of bid'ah uh, and the leaders of what the and the leaders of the community will not let you do da'wah? No, they will not let you do your da'wah. I mean, since they own the streets and they own the uh, I mean, the cities, the village square, and so forth. I mean, I, mean, I don't believe the situation is reached to that level. They might not allow you to do da'wah in their message, right? But you can do da'wah in their, in their message through your actions. How? Well, for instance, you come there and you're praying in that message. They don't allow you to, to speak in that message. But you come there and you observe the salah in the message. When the event is called, you're always there in the first row. Your character is such that when people see you, you smile, assalamu alaikum, alaikum assalam. How are you doing this over and you walk out? People will notice you. But you stand out, outside in that mischief. And so somebody might, you know, want to, well, he looks like somebody who I, I feel like drawing close to. So he might come and try to talk to you. Just say, come to my house for you. Come to my house for tea. Come to my house for, uh, 
to eat so quick. In America, we don't have for health and safety. We don't get food. But you get what I'm saying. So the point is, is then you can give them dowry in your household. You know, so you can meet somebody in the street. You might open up a storefront, which you can just engage dowry from. They don't allow the message. There are many different ways. So, you know, brothers need to be a little bit innovative, not meaning innovative being my father's good dowry, but innovative by trying to use all the means at their disposal uh, in order to give dowry. Can you give examples of the content of that we should be giving to non-Muslims in our in this time and this place? In general, uh, the content of Dawa to Christians, because basically we're living in a Christian society, uh, Dawa to the Christians is basically based upon two principles. Two principles. Uh, the first principle is, uh, which I think Muslims sort of are good at, um, is informing them that their religion has is no longer the pure religion which Allah sent the Prophet Asa in Numeria. In other words, the corruption of the religion. Muslims excel in this. In the sense that, I mean, most Muslims, you know, will like talk about the errors in the Bible and so forth. When we talk about the corruption of the religion, we just don't mean that the religion has the errors in the Bible. We mean in the sense that the whole religion, you know, saying, is not based upon that which Asa taught. I mean, Christmas is not biblical, right? Easter is not biblical. The rites that they do, the communion, uh, the mass, all these matters, their beliefs, the trinity, none of this can be traced back to ancient Maria. And most Christians will, will recognize this today. Uh, you know, the research that was done in the last two centuries, uh, the Protestant movement, has all caused a general awareness amongst many Christians that much of their practices is not rooted uh, in the teachings of ancient Maria. Okay? So that's basically, that half is over. It comes the second half. Calling them to that which the Prophet Muhammad came with, and calling them to the Prophet Muhammad. And this is something where Muslims fail in. I mean, to try to make that person who you're calling understand that Allah sent Prophet Muhammad to him. And Allah is going to ask him what is his position regarding Muhammad. This is something which we tend to shy away from. We feel embarrassed of it. Also, likewise, uh, we don't approach well. So this is something which we need to train ourselves with by bringing you the evidences to prove that the Prophet Muhammad was truly a Prophet from Allah, that that's just a claim he made, and also calling into the central aspect of the Prophet's mission, which is Tawheed. Because these people leave, live, because of the secular lifestyle, the materialistic lifestyle, they live a spiritual emptiness. And so therefore you need to touch their hearts. You don't want to just, you know, talk back to them, you know what I'm saying? And then to a lot of, you know, theory and argumentation with them. But you need to touch their hearts and inform them that they need to understand that Allah sent to them the Prophet Muhammad Please, can you define the boundaries of dawah when done by sister? For example, in my case, I wear the niqab and do not go out and intermix with the kuffar. Would dawah be given to my family be sufficient? Well, also to your neighbors. I mean, the fact that the sister wears the niqab, covers her face, and she doesn't go out, doesn't preclude that she cannot give dawah to her neighbors, right? I mean, let's say the sister, she's married or not married, it's not important, but she lives next door to a household, next door household are non-Muslims. She can't invite them over to the house. She can't go visit them. She cannot exchange gifts with them. She cannot ask if she's, for instance, if she's married and she's got children, she cannot ask about the other children. Uh, if those people have to, you know, go somewhere, those children can sit in the house for an hour or so. Uh, you know, take care of I mean, This is a whole realm of social activity which sisters uh, engage in 
are, I mean, are, is, they're allowed to engage in, in Islam, which are means for dawah. So, you know, it's not to understand that if the sister is wearing the hijab and she's observing the full hijab that a Muslim woman uh, should uh, observe, that her means for dawah now has all been cut off. No. Her means for dawah are much amazing. She can write letters. She sees an article in the newspaper which does something ill to Islam. She can't write a letter to the editor and says, you know, what you have expressed about Muslim women is, is an inaccurate conception. She's perfectly allowed to do that. She cannot, uh, you know, if some Muslims are having problems, go and advise them by telephone and so forth if she has knowledge. If some Muslim sister, her sister in Islam is having some sort of problems with her husband, give her advice, show her a means to solve her problems. There's a whole realm of activity that Muslim sisters can get involved in. And what brothers need to understand and what brothers need to do is we need to ed- educate the other half of the Ummah. Muslim women should not be put always in the back of our priorities because they are the mothers of the next generation. And if you look at the practice of the Prophet wasallam, Sahaba, Aisha radiallahu anha is amongst the major companions who told of hadith related to the activities of the Prophet wasallam, and likewise of giving fatawa Giving fatawa, Aisha radiallahu anha was one of the major companions to give fatawa, a major source of knowledge. So Muslim women have a great role to play in da'wah. And in traditional Islamic teaching, many scholars had Muslim women teachers because they had knowledge. Now, that does not mean now I'm saying that, okay, uh, everybody go and now set up a circle, and sit a circle, set up a circle, and brothers go study with her. No, that's not the point. Because the rule is that men should study with men unless that knowledge is not found except among women. And so for the Sahaba when he used to go to Aisha radiallahu anha for a fatwa, it was only when they used to ask themselves, does anybody know what the Prophet Sallallahu did or said regarding this? And they would say, we have no idea. Okay, let's contact women meaning Aisha radiallahu anha. So that's when it takes place. At the same time, women can teach women and women can teach those young men like boys or uh, sons or nephews who are underneath their charge, which is all possible and all other things. The majority of British people are atheists. If you can give, if you can give them dawah, they normally come up with the a lot of questions about evidence of if there is a god or not. Examples against God, i.e., the uh, theory of evolution, Darwin's theory. Uh, it's very hard to convince them with powerful reasoning. How, how, how can you recommend we do this? And what books also would you recommend? Right. Well, I mean, in English, I'm not familiar with a lot of books regarding dealing with the atheists, but there is one book uh, which was published in the United States, and I don't know if it's available here in, in the United Kingdom, uh, by Dr. Jaffer Idris, called um, uh, A Law and Modern Physics, or something like that, the title of that. And what it does is try to show how the arguments of, uh, you know, of science and so forth all indicate the existence of a God, of Allah. And that could be a starting point with many uh, people who are atheists, especially those who are atheists by, uh, or at least they try to be atheists by conviction, which are usually educated. Those who are atheists by, you know, just by, by practice in a sense, they're usually not atheists deep down inside. But just because the society is atheistic, and therefore they just say, okay, we're atheists. You know, we don't believe, we don't know. They're usually agnostic. And usually if we touch their fifth off, they'll come. But there are some people, especially academics and so forth, who actually have rational arguments that they try to use regarding uh, the existence of God. And maybe this book 
uh, would answer uh, these questions. And those who are interested in the book, uh, you can contact me in the United States, uh, email me or something, or send me a fax or a letter, and I'll try to provide you address where you can find that book. Certain Muslim organizations exercise dawah by posting literature to non-Muslim houses, giving them the opportunity to contact the organization if they wish to do so. Does this comply with the rules of dawah as practiced by the Prophet وسلم, and the Wadi Salaf? Yeah. Well, first of all, we should understand in terms of the dawah as practiced by the ways of the Prophet and the Wadi Salaf, that the correct opinion is that the means for dawah are generally uh, the means for da'wah are generally... Okay, I'll try my best here. The means for da'wah are generally uh, not uh, such that where uh, the means for da'wah are restricted to only those means practiced by the Prophet In general, the rule is that the means of da'wah, any new means of da'wah is permissible provided that means of da'wah does not in turn include something which in itself is forbidden or leads to something which is forbidden. So the giving of leaflets, the question should not be arising and whether the Prophet gave leaflets or not. But the question is, is that this means of da'wah, the new means of da'wah, it in itself does not apparently seem to include something which is forbidden or lead to something which is forbidden and so therefore in and of itself it's permissible to use this means of doubt like radio, like lectures, it probably didn't have a conference and lectures and so forth but this is permissible in our religion however though, uh, the question is does this like type of you know, canvassing where you're going to give people leaflets and send them to addresses is this a means of doubt which is effective or not? And I think that would depend upon the nature of you know, the British people and so forth you know I would have my doubts in the United States that it would be an effective means of dawah. Because in the United States, people are bombarded with junk mail. And so therefore, the tendency of Americans is that when you get your mail every day, you look at it, you just find the bills, and the rest you just put it in the trash can. So if they don't see there's a bill, it's probably going to in the trash, okay? But maybe in the United Kingdom, people are, you know, more receptive to reading their mail and so forth. So it might be useful here or not. That's something which the people of the area should decide. Are there certain father obligatory duties that a Muslim has upon a new Muslim? Excuse me? Right. Again, what are the duties that are responsible for a Muslim who calls a non-Muslim that non-Muslim embraces Islam? Well, besides the you know, general obligations of teaching him how to pray, teaching him the basics of his faith, teaching him the basics of a Muslim conduct, in terms of the basic halal, the basic haram, the basic etiquette and conduct a person should carry. Uh, moreover, again, we should you know, be at least aware and sensitive to the different problems he's going to face by breaking himself off from his old community and coming to a new community. And so therefore, you know, we need to plan ahead. We need to, you know what I'm saying, build an awareness. I remember one time I was giving a lecture in Texas. And, you know, the brother came to me, an American, um, from Texas, and said, uh, you know, I love Islam. I've been a Muslim for, I don't know, six, seven years. But nobody would marry me to his daughter. Uh, that's because the people were, you know, saying that he's a white American, and, you know, everybody was from a different ethnic background, and they would only marry their daughter to those people of those ethnic backgrounds. And he said to me, what am I supposed to do? 
I mean, I want to avoid uh, illicit sexual uh, relations, but I want to get married, and nobody will accept me because I am not from their ethnic background. So, in other words, you know, one has to plan ahead. People are going to come into our religion by Allah's grace. We need to raise an awareness in our community that Muslims are going to come, and we need to treat them as full, total human beings. And I think one of the best means that we can do with non-Muslims is something which we, uh, we used to do uh, before uh, uh, on a personal level uh, is bring them into our households when possible. In other words, uh, if a person has a household, a big house and so forth, and maybe he's a single brother or a number of brothers living together, and a new person comes to the face, let him stay with you for a couple of weeks. If he stays with you for a couple of weeks, he's going to be constantly in contact with Muslims, constantly in contact with the masjid, and so therefore that will help his understanding, will speed up the process of his understanding and his understanding of the religion, the increasing of his faith. But what happens is sometimes he comes to take the shahada, he goes back and nobody hears from him for another six months or so, and you know, the whole idea of him becoming a Muslim sometimes is just wrong. But these are just something to keep in mind. Yes. What is the punishment if wrong information is passed on to uh, a new Muslim unknowingly? Please clarify. Well, if it's done unknowingly, I mean, in terms of passing off wrong information, whether it's to a Muslim or to a non-Muslim, people make mistakes. So, uh, one should be careful and attempt his utmost to try to, when he says something about Allah's religion, that he says that which is accurate and he knows to be true. Now, if a man's taken, he should then try to clarify his mistake. Uh, by rectifying their misconception, if he taught somebody a misconception, say, well, look, I told you such and such, and I was mistaken, and trying to rectify that. So, in general, uh, however, though, uh, in terms of punishment, uh, if the person is uh, uh, neglectful, in the sense that he's just calling to Islam, and he's not observant of the fact that he's speaking about Allah and his religion, and he could be sinful, and then, therefore he'll be held accountable for that sin. But if he's trying his utmost and he makes a mistake, uh, then inshallah Allah will not hold him responsible and Allah will stop. If a non-Muslim wants to become a Muslim but his family rejects him and physically beats him to stop him from mentioning Islam, what can you advise this person to do? Right. Uh, he can become a closet Muslim in the sense that he hides his Islam from his family. Uh, many years ago, uh, there used to be in uh, our area a young uh, boy of high school age who was from Yugoslavia. And uh, this uh, young man took shahada upon the hands of a fellow Muslim in high school. But at that time, of course, Yugoslavia being a communist country, and his father was a diplomat in the Yugoslavian embassy uh, uh, in um, Washington, hated Islam. And moreover, uh, his family were Serbs. So you must imagine their feelings towards Islam. So this young Serbian Muslim, who comes from a, a family where the person, uh, the family is um, communist, uh, hid his Islam. Uh, he used to pretend that he was a non-Muslim. He never would tell his friends that he was a Muslim. And only expressed his Islam when he was outside of his household. He didn't keep a Quran in the house. He didn't keep a prayer rug in the house. And he would only express his Islam when he would come out of the house. If he would pray, he would pray in secret. If he would make wudu, he would make wudu in secret, so nobody would know in the household. And he stayed like that for about two years. And then what happened, uh, the brother um, 
went, uh, called his cousin, a young girl, to Islam. And his cousin was only like about 12 years old, and she embraced Islam. But because she was a 12-year-old girl, she didn't have the wisdom to hide the Islam. So she immediately told all the family that, uh, I'm a Muslim, and so is my cousin, uh, is a Muslim. Well, you might imagine when the father found that out, uh, he immediately began to uh, beat the boy and um, shipped him out of the United States and took him to Yugoslavia. Not only took him to Yugoslavia, but forced him into the army and told the people in the army, watch out for him. He's a Muslim. And so therefore, in the army, they used to watch him very carefully and they used to try to, um, um, you know, uh, beat him and so forth and make sure that he was not a Muslim. So he was patient for two years in the army, pretending that he was a non-Muslim. I mean, during those two years, he could not even pray publicly, because he was always watched. So he'd only pray in his heart, in the time of prayer, like through his eyes and his, you know, head and so forth, you know. Then after two years, and he was, you know, he did his service in the army, he came out, and he wanted to come back to America to practice his Islam. But he had to convince his parents now that he was no longer a Muslim. So, for a number of months, he would pretend, and his father used to do things like bring pork to the table to test him. So he would eat it, and then go upstairs and vomit it out, in order to try to convince him that he was not a Muslim. And likewise, he would, for instance, his neighbor, he would tell her to come to the house, and bring her into the house and so forth and try to convince his uh, father and mother that this is his girlfriend. Even though he wasn't, but he would just say, okay, come to the house and so forth. So they walk in together, they would see.